It is so good to be with you here again today, and I'm so glad we have this time to continue our study in the church and in the purpose of our gathering. I'd ask if you turn in the book of Matthew chapter 28. We're looking at a passage in Matthew 28 familiar to most of us, and also, again, we'll be taking a little bit of a look at some other portions in the New Testament that give us God's design for his people. Matthew chapter 28, begin reading at verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let us take a moment and ask the Lord's blessing again on our time together. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom it speaks. We thank you that we have salvation in his name, that there is forgiveness of sins, that there is a a place reserved for us in your presence, that you have given us a new life and a new purpose. We pray, Father, that we might live according to our calling. We pray that we might know what is the hope of that calling, that we might know the exceeding greatness of the power that is toward us who believe, that we might know what is our inheritance, that we might know what you have blessed us with, Lord, so that we might go forth into this world in the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we have opportunities all around us to make a difference. We have opportunities all around us to bless others. We would pray, O oh God, that your spirit might inspire and encourage us to live out the things you have for us, the things that you've put in us. Lord, we thank you for your word again. We ask for your help in understanding it. We ask for your help in applying it. We are but uh, sinners saved by grace. And we look to you, O oh God, to take us and sanctify us, to mold us and make us, to put us into your image, Lord Jesus that we might glorify our Father in heaven. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, Charles Bridges writes, The church is the mirror that reflects the whole brilliant radiance of the divine character. It is the grand scene in which the perfections of Yahweh are displayed to the universe. C.S. Lewis said the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, mission, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. It is even doubtful, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose. We stop and think about those two quotes. We see a glimpse into what our role is as members of the body of Christ, that God wants to display his brilliant radiance through us, that he wants to take us, think about this, mere clay, just, you know, flesh and blood, and he wants to take us and use us to display his glory. He wants to shine through us. He wants his presence to be felt by us, in us, and through us to the world around. He wants us to be caught up in his grand design and his grand scheme. 
that there is a mission for us and a purpose for us that transcends time and space. That's something that God planned before the creation of the world and that he has been bringing to pass through what we call history. And even now, your story and my story is part of his story. That we are not here for the 70 or 80 or 90 years of our existence simply to occupy a space on this planet, but rather we are to be caught up into his grand drama. And what that might mean for you and what that might mean for me may be very different because God places us in a certain context. He puts each of us as individuals within a community, within a family, within a neighborhood. And in that local context, in that local church, he has a mission for each one of us. And so the challenge for us is to understand what is that purpose? What is the purpose of the ecclesia? What is the purpose of our gathering as a local church? You know, when we first got together in December, we looked at the promise of the church. We looked at the promise of the gathering where Jesus said, I will build my church, where he takes ownership and he's the one responsible and it's his church. He will build it. And it's always been about the people. It's not about the buildings. It's not about the programs. It's not even about the outreaches. It's always been about the people, the ones who are called out and gathered together in his name. We then look at the portraits in the New Testament, two particular ones where Paul describes us as the body and bride of Christ, and how those two images convey to us a message of both interconnectedness as the body and intimacy as the bride, that there is relationship that we have with God, and there's a relationship that we have with one another. That when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he taught us to pray, our Father who's in heaven. And then we looked at the power of the gathering and how that there is power invested in us. Just, just as we just read a moment ago that Jesus has said all authority has been given to him on earth and in heaven. And he has invested some of that with us, in us. And we have received power through the Holy Spirit. And the gospel is power. And the gospel is power. And the Holy Spirit is power. And he's given us a tool in prayer, which is a power itself. And then last week, we talked about the purpose of the gathering, and it orients our focus away from ourselves. Even as the psalmist prayed, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto your name be glory. That it's not about us building empires or kingdoms here for ourselves as churches, but rather we are to be to the praise of his glory. That what is true for us as individuals is true for us collectively. That we're not here to only bring honor to ourselves or occupy our own space to create a name for ourselves or a legacy for ourselves, but rather we are to live for him, both individually and collectively. That we are to do the things that we do, whether it's gathering together to study the word or to pray or to have fellowship or break bread, that these things are methods in which we can glorify God. That they themselves are not the end, but that the end is to bring honor and glory to his name. And today we're looking at the second purpose of the church. 
as it were, or another way in which we bring honor and glory to his name, that Jesus has left us here on mission to make disciples, that a purpose of our gathering is, as it were, to share in God's design to make us like his son, that his love for his son means that he wants all of us to look like him. He wants to bring us into a relationship with himself that is as close as he has with his son. And he wants us to share in that relationship. And he wants us to participate in the process where we are used by God to help others become like Jesus. That is such a privilege. I can't even begin to imagine like this idea that God does not choose angels to do this. I mean, even if we might imagine they, in our minds, they might be better at it than us. They wouldn't mess up. But the reality is that God has by sovereign will said, this is how it's going to be. I'm going to work through my people. I'm going to work through the church. I'm going to work through human beings. These people who are flawed, broken, sometimes just downright miserable. He's chosen to use us in this purpose. And you can kind of step back and see the divine wisdom, right? Because really, we can't do this without him. In the end, he gets all the glory because in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. It's in our brokenness that he shines. You know, Paul says we have this treasure in clay pots. Let me tell you, this pot's got lots of cracks in it. (laughs) You might say, I'm a crack pot. But listen, you put a bright light in a crack pot. Guess what? The light shines through. And that's really what God wants to do with each one of us. That he wants his light to shine through us with all of our flaws, with all our failures, with all of our faults. This is his prerogative, that he has designed it this way. And so when we think about this process of becoming a disciple, of being a disciple, of making a disciple, it helps us if we can wrap our brain around exactly what the the idea here is or what the intent is. Now, last week we talked about the word fellowship, right? And, And the word fellowship has gotten like a really religious connotation to it. We never use fellowship outside of church, right? We don't talk about going out for drinks with our friends and having some fellowship. We just don't do that, right? We, 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 we don't do that. We, we kind of reserve the word for religious activities. And the same thing is true with the word disciple. Like I don't go into school on a, tomorrow morning and say, okay, all of you, my disciples, here we are. This is what we're doing today in class, okay? I don't do that, Okay. But the reality is that the word disciple is a student. It is a student. But that doesn't help us because the way modern education, which, by the way, has only been around for a little over 100 years, the way modern education works is very much an industrial model. And everything that we do when we think about education is built around an industrial model. What I mean by that is like, you know, the raw material comes into the factory. The student is the raw material. The factory is the school. They follow a schedule. They move down the assembly line, math, science, English, social studies, and boom, out they come a citizen. Okay, on the other end of the assembly line. Okay. But what's absent in that model is the 
role that a teacher would have when Jesus was here and the kind of disciples that the disciples were. See, Jesus didn't have seminary classes. He had dinners. He didn't have a Bible class. He walked around a crowd of people on the side of a mountain talking to them about what was really important. When he wanted people to know him, he didn't post it on Facebook. He invited them into his life to walk with him a lot, to eat with him, to share the same hardships, struggles, trials, temptations. In other words, they were together in this process. The modern student doesn't expect me to parent them, although sometimes public education is sometimes given that responsibility. But the modern student doesn't expect me to know them beyond the classroom. And they certainly don't know me. In fact, it was quite shocking. I'm teaching a sociology class, and we did a social location uh, diagram, which basically is to try to figure out all the input that you have from outside yourself. And I asked my students to do this, and I did it for them. The stunned silence in the classroom as I shared my life with them, they had, they, you could tell no teacher's ever done this with them. Who my parents were, who my siblings are, who's died in my family, who's still alive, where I grew up, what school I went to, my religion, my belief systems. You know, they were like, that's just not what they expect teachers to do. But I got away because it's a sociology class. You can't help but be social, right? But you see, that kind of intimacy, that kind of awareness, that's what was expected. When Jesus said to his disciples, come and follow me, he wasn't speaking rhetorically. He wasn't talking metaphorically or theoretically or even theologically. He literally meant, leave what you're doing right now and come follow me. Now, in addition to that, there was a difference between being just a follower and being a disciple. There were lots of people who crowded Jesus, who who went to see him, to listen to him, to hear him teach, to see the miracles. But they were not strictly disciples. The disciples were people that Jesus was investing in. And they had made a commitment to follow him. And you see, for us as believers, it is a fact that as a Christian, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. In other words, when I preach the gospel, I need to preach it freely. I need to make sure that people understand that God loves them, that he so loved them that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That the call of the gospel is a call of faith in the one who's paid it all. That the gospel is good news because 
God knows exactly what I need and he's provided it for me in the person of his son. That the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is sufficient. It is sufficient for every sin and for every sinner. And that what is required of me is not a new leaf. It is not a reformation. It is not a change in my behavior, but rather a trust in the one who paid it all. But in that trust, God invites me into a relationship with him where now, as Paul said, this is what we labor for, that we might present everyone perfect in Christ Jesus. So what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 5. We looked at this earlier on when we talked about the idea of how we are the bride and body of Christ. But when you look at Ephesians chapter 5, we find that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. Why? So that he might sanctify her. So you become a part of the church. What is the purpose that he might sanctify you? Cleanse you by the washing of water and the word. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she would be holy and blameless. You see that when we are brought into this relationship, we're brought into the church. We have this forgiveness, this pardon. What is the end product is that God wants to make us holy and blameless, having no spot, no wrinkle. And that is why Paul would say, we proclaim him admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present everyone complete in Christ. For this purpose, I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Now, there have been three things I've learned about discipleship and being a disciple the hard way. Perhaps there's no other way to learn things than other than the hard way. But I'd like to share with you these three principles that when we think about this mission of the church and we think about what it means to be in this ministry of making disciples, of being a disciple and making disciples, what are the three things that I've acquired, understood, and trying to put into practice in my own life? The first thing is when we think about discipleship, we think about discipline. We think about spiritual disciplines. We think about exercising ourselves to godliness. We think about the things that Christians do in order to be better Christians, right? What it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But what we need to understand is that discipline is not about performance. Discipline is not about performance. Okay, I'm going to share it with everybody. We were having this conversation at the table. I know Steve's going to love it right now. Go ahead. Should I share something? See, because what happens is, is that we start to fall into patterns of performance, So early on in my relationship with Rose, we were not even really seriously dating. We were just working together. We were out for a walk one day, and we're just talking about spiritual things. And my wife turns to me, and she says, Ken, I have to tell you, I really hate the way you pray. (laughs) Now, what she meant was that here I am, I'm a young man in my 20s, and I prayed in the perfect King James English. Now, some of you here might think that's a good thing. What's the problem with that? Okay, But I don't live in the 19th century. And I wasn't 70 years old. Careful. 
were praying in the King James English if that's the way you pray. But the problem was, is I was a 21-year-old man trying to be something I wasn't. Because my discipline had become a performance. When I got up to pray at the Lord's Supper, I, listen, I could pray with the best of them. Let me tell you, I never got my tenses wrong. I never got my pronouns wrong. When it was thy, I said thy. And when it was thine, I said thine. And I knew the difference. But the reality was, is that I never talked to anybody else like that anywhere at any time. And my wife simply said to me, why do you talk to God like that? Now, some people say, well, because you're showing proper respect for God. And isn't that how they did in the Bible? And the answer is, well, no, not really. King James, that's how they spoke. That's the language they used. There was nothing particularly holy about thy and thine when James had the Bible translated that way. They weren't trying to make it more holy. It was just the way they spoke. And it became about performance. Now, maybe there's some of you here who maybe that's not your issue, but you know what? We need to understand that there are lots of things that we can do as Christians, and if we make that the goal, in other words, reading my Bible every day, that's a good thing, but if that's the goal, I'm missing the point. If praying and having a certain time of prayer time is a goal, if that's the goal, and that's all the goal is, I'm missing the point. What does Paul say to Timothy? He says, have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For godly exercise is of little profit. I'm sorry, but godly exercise is of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds a promise for the present life and the life to come. Spiritual discipline is for godliness, not discipline for discipline's sake. We are to disciple ourselves before we can disciple anybody else. But we are to disciple ourselves for the purpose of godliness. I want to give you a word that I was, I picked up last year at a sermon. It's a good word. It makes what we're trying to get at here very clear. It may not be clear to you right away, but it's a good word if you understand. It's called indirection. Indirection. What does that mean? Well, has anyone ever seen any of the Karate Kid movies? Mr. Miyagi, okay? Right? Okay, so now you know in the very first Karate Kid, when Daniel-san comes to Mr. Miyagi to learn how to be karate, he wants to study karate, he wants to grab karate, and all Miyagi has him doing is what? Wax on, wax off, over and over. Paint the fence, up and down, right? But see, what that is, is that's an example of indirection. He was learning skills. He was doing something he could do to master something at the time he could not do, which was do karate. Spiritually speaking, indirection is this, that God opens doors of opportunity for me to do things like read my Bible, like spending time with him in prayer, by memorizing the scriptures, by attending the meetings. Those are things that I can do so that he can do the things in me that I can't do. Because it's only the Holy Spirit that changes me. I can't change myself. All the Bible reading, all the praying that I might do in my own strength is not going to change me. But if I have in my mind the idea that when I open the word, I'm putting myself before God so that he can change me. 
that when I'm praying, it's not so I can check a box on the discipleship list, but rather I'm actually going before him into his presence so that he can change me. Something amazing happens. It's a shift of perspective, but isn't that what faith is? Isn't faith really a shift in perspective of what what you trust and who you trust? So discipline is not about performance. That's why I think sometimes when we get tired of the disciplines, we're losing sight of what their purpose is. The second thing is that discipleship is not a program. I grew up in a day where, uh, as a young person, there were lots of discipleship programs. There were lots of programs. Navigators had them. Campus Crusade had them. There were all kinds of programs of discipleship. And as a person who's kind of like bent toward teaching and has a kind of interest in those kinds of sequential kind of program, I just bought into that, you know, completely. And there's, a, I guess, a purpose for that. But I think that what we have found is that people are not programs and discipleship is not a program. What was Paul's model of discipleship? Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Do you know why I think programs are so attractive to churches and discipleship? It's because they keep people at arm's length. If I had a discipleship program and I invited you to come and you came and I was the teacher and you were the students and we went through some kind of sequential program, we would check that box. We do it on a Tuesday night. You come, we gather, we talk, we study, and then you go your separate ways. I go my separate way. We check the box, but I've kept you at arm's length. When Paul was with people, he was with them. I mean, think about this. He was in Thessalonica for, I think, less than a month. But the time that he spent with those people, they knew how much he loved and cared about them. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives as well. Because you'd become very dear to us. Here's what I think in the church. We have plenty of programs, but very few parents. We have lots of programs, but very few parents. But see, when someone is saved, we say they're what? Born again. We say that they are babes in Christ. We say that they are new in Christ, new creations. And then we hand them a four-step or seven-step or 12-step program. But who does that to an infant? What do infants need? They need food, the word of God. But you know what the Romanian orphanages taught us? That you can care for all the physical needs of an orphan and they will not thrive. In the Romanian orphanages, they were so understaffed that the, the caregivers in those orphanages could not 
physically touch or care for the newborn orphans. They could provide for their food. They could change their diapers, but they spent no time with them. And those babies never thrived. They died in inordinate numbers. They did not thrive because there was no personal contact. And so if discipline is about indirection, discipleship is about investment. It's an investment of time and knowledge and wisdom and experience. You know, there was a dear brother who were who was part of uh, our assembly, he was an elder. And when I was a teenager, uh, he would pick me up on a Monday night and drive me down to the missionary prayer meeting. He and I would go to, I was 14 years old. He would take me to the missionary prayer meeting and we would drive down there. And you know what? I'm convinced that the, most of the discipleship did not take place at the missionary prayer meeting. It took place on the car ride down, the car ride home, and the ice cream at Dairy Queen that followed. If it's about parenting and not about programs, it reminds me that people are not projects. It's not my responsibility to fix people. First, I can't. And it's delusional if I think I can. Learn that the hard way. We can't fix people. I can't even fix myself. What do I need? I need God to fix me. Well, if I need God to fix me, who am I kidding if I think I can fix somebody else? The best I can do is point people to Jesus. And remind them of the way he's helped me. Look. He can help me. He can help you. There's nothing special about me. There's nothing that's like so amazing about me that what you're seeing in me, whatever good it might be. First, you need to understand it comes from Jesus. And secondly, if he's done it for me, he can do it for you. There's nothing special about me. They're his disciples, not really ours. Just as it's his church and not really ours. And so if it's an investment, what are we doing? Well, we're instructing. We are instructing. Paul said to Timothy, the things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust these to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. So in every relationship I have, there's going to be an element of instruction. God wants me. Jesus said, teach. But what we think of when we think teach, we think classroom. When Jesus says teach, he thinks life. When we hear when we hear the word teach, we think seminary. When we when Jesus says the word teach, he thinks supper. And then it's through invitation. Think about how many times Jesus invited people. If any one of you won't be my disciple, come and follow me. What did Paul say? I fear for you that perhaps I've labored for you in vain. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am. For I also have become as you are. You know what terrifies us about discipleship? is people getting to know us as we really are. But think about this, that that's actually the goal, right? Jesus said that the student is not above the teacher. If we're to help others become like Jesus, that means in one sense they should be. No, I say this carefully. They should become like me. Because if I'm following Jesus, that's what Paul is saying. You follow me as I follow Christ. 
And you see, it's an invitation. Jesus said, come to me. If any of you would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so, therefore, we become imitators. We invest, we instruct, we invite, and we imitate. Paul would say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Become as I am. The church is the mirror. But you know what's interesting about mirrors? They only reflect what they're facing. So what direction is the mirror facing? If it's facing ourselves, well, forget it. It's a lost cause right from the start. But if it's facing Christ, then the image people will see is him. And we have the opportunity to become as little Christs. Some final thoughts. When Jesus was gathering his disciples, it says in Mark chapter 3, verse 13, that he went up on the mountain and he prayed all night long. And when he came down from that mountain, he summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him and he appointed 12. And this is what it says. He appointed those 12 so that they could be with him and that they could go out and preach. He summoned them first so that they could be with him. And what do we find in Acts chapter 4? When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these had been with Jesus. He wanted them, he summoned them so that they could be with him, so that he could send them out. Why? Because every disciple is meant to become an apostle. Not with a big A, a little A. Everyone who is a student is meant to be a sent one. Everyone who is a learner is intended to become a teacher. It's not about performance. It's not about programs or projects, although they may have their place. God's people are disciplined by indirection, investing in each other as we pour out our lives into one another so that we become apostles who are instructing others and inviting others to imitate their lives, even as they imitate Christ. That's why we're here. And there's no greater mission. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, as we are here in your presence, we thank you for this opportunity to meditate on these things. We ask, Lord, that you would give feet to these words and in our lives, we would consider how we are to move forward into obedience. Lord, we repent that we prefer keeping people at arm's distance, that we prefer to live our isolated existences. And 
that we enjoy having control over our time and our resources. And we like to be able to say yes to whatever we want to and no to whatever we want to. But Lord, you call us out of ourselves. You've called us out. That's what we are as the church. So help us, Lord, to put aside these lesser distractions and these petty interests and help us to be caught up in your grand design. And it might mean being the difference in one person's life. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, hearts that love, hands and feet willing to serve and go where you need us to go. For your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.